When I listen to my heart, I hear nothing but the cold scrape of steel on steel and the slow crawl of bad blood pumping the phantom limbs. I could swear I still feel because I followed my dreams in the darkness and woke up feeling like I've been drugged. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Misaligned. We are back this week with our book club episode, but before we dive into that, we're going to talk about some of our other anticipated media for the year. I know our last regular episode, we strictly covered music, and with as much as Megan and I read and watch other things, I figured this would be a good time to sort of throw this in with the book club episode and get an idea of what we're looking forward to as a whole this year. So Megan, I know we have a few things in common on our list here. So why don't we start off with the Star Wars movie that will come out like at the very, very end of the year, pretty much. Yes. And actually, wasn't today? Yeah, it was today that they announced that the title of this new movie was going to be The Last Jedi. Right. So that's exciting. Yeah. And this will be episode eight so it'll be back to the same sort of theme that the force awakens had going on we'll be continuing that story and even though we don't really have too much information about it just yet like we haven't seen a trailer or anything i'm still really looking forward to this because i want to see sort of how they handle the ending of the force awakens and bring that into a full new movie Mm mm-hmm I mean, I still also haven't seen uh, Rogue One yet, so I'm a little behind in Star Wars things, which is okay, but I know that I am definitely excited to see The Last Jedi. Yeah, and you don't even really need to necessarily see Rogue One before watching Episode Eight because that is sort of one of these standalone movies, even though it still fits in with the continuity of the episode movies. So, you know, you you don't need to be in a rush to sort of go see that right away or make sure you see that before Episode 8, although I'm sure you will probably watch it at some point this year before Episode 8 comes out. Oh, totally. I just feel like I'm in the, like, 0.000001% that has yet to see Rogue One. Probably. Probably. And then I believe we have Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 in common as well i know when this movie first came out the original one obviously i was just so blown away by how well i enjoyed it because i didn't i wasn't really into comics at the time when all of these marvel and dc movies started coming out in these new waves basically and so i had pretty much no knowledge of any of the guardians (laughs) so now that i've sort of gotten into the comics more and everything it's going to be, I think, even more fun for me to see how this plays out on the big screen again. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm just excited because we get to see Child Groot based on the trailers. Baby Groot. (laughs) Baby Groot, Kid Groot, you know, the world needs more Groot, (laughs) especially now. Yeah. And I, I just think, you know, even though it's a space movie and a Marvel movie, It never really felt that way because I think they do a good job of sort of ironically keeping it grounded. So you see all of this time. It's definitely much different than Star Wars, obviously, as far as space movies go. And I think that's sort of what helps people 
sort of get into both in different ways. You know, you have Star Wars where obviously they're meant to be battling a lot and fighting. And then you have Guardians of the Galaxy where they have that, but it has much more of a comedic side to it. Oh, yeah. And it actually is a bit more adult than, say, other Marvel movies with the exception of Deadpool. But it's something that, I don't know, probably wouldn't recommend taking your kid to see after... (laughs) Excuse me. After taking um, a look at the trailer. And another thing is that the effects in the Marvel movies of today, especially with Guardians of the Galaxy... They're not like the cheesy effects that you still see in Star Wars films. Part of the reason behind the Star Wars stuff is that I think that kitsch factor, where even though we live in an age where technology is great and wonderful, people still want to see these cheesy effects. Right. And I mean, the same could honestly be said about Doctor Who. We have this era where technology has gotten better and we can tell it's gotten better, but they still resort to using some, oh my God, that's totally a green screen moment type things. (laughs) Right. And in addition to these two sort of more space type superhero type movies, even though Star Wars has never really been dubbed as a superhero movie, you still have heroes in a different sense. But I have Wonder Woman on my list and you have Spider-Man Homecoming. So obviously those easily fall into the superhero realm. And I think I could have easily put Spider-Man on my list. I just didn't want to overload my list because I wasn't (laughs) sure how how much you were going to put in here as well. But I think Wonder Woman is sort of the one movie as far as the superhero movies go that I'm just so intent on seeing how it plays out because I think for DC, this really is one of their last chances to sort of get things right with their movies because as we saw with Suicide Squad and even a bit with Batman versus Superman, a lot of fans, especially some of the hardcore fans, weren't too fond of these movies. And if you go onto a site like Rotten Tomatoes, you know, they're both in the twenties and thirties for the percent of how how much people liked it. So that's a little worrisome because for me, when I watched Batman versus Superman, Wonder Woman was sort of my favorite part of that movie. So <laughs> basically my favorite part had nothing to do with Batman or Superman. So I'm just really hoping that they get this movie right and it sort of gives them that push they need to then go and have Justice League come out later in the year. True. And I mean, I haven't seen Suicide Squad or Batman vs. Superman solely because of the ratings and because I had a lot of friends that were just like, really? This was awful. Yeah, I didn't see Suicide Squad either. Yeah. Plus, I can't stand that, you know, 21 Pilot song. The Heathen (laughs) song that's everywhere. My God. Um, But anyway, yeah, Spider-Man Homecoming. That's on my list. I'm excited for that. The cast seems fantastic. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out since we were able to see the new Spider-Man in Civil War. Right. And I am just excited to see, you know, more of him and see, I think it was what, Zendaya was announced as Mary Jane? Yeah, I believe so. So I love her and I think she'll be a great Mary Jane. So we'll see. 
And in a complete like 360 from you having a lot of the superhero movies on yours, mm-hmm. I have two on my list that are not. And both of them are actually sequels, kind of. Right. Count, you know, the third installation of Despicable Me as a sequel, or that be a threequel? I don't know. Trilogy? Word, word. Trilogy? I don't, well, they might make more than one Despicable Me. Well, yes, which this I'm okay is true. with because who doesn't love Gru and the girls, um, or the minions that are everywhere? <laughs> but Despicable Me three, I'm excited for because the villain is like straight up out of the 80s, okay. and the trailer just looked so absurd. Like he uses bubble gum as a <laughs> weapon, and uh, his outfits are ridiculous. I I just. I don't know. I'm actually a five-year-old child, in case you guys haven't figured this out yet, where, yes, I will go watch a movie for kids in a theater because I am not going to be 26 this year. No way. I'm repressing that. Um, Going on to the more adult side of things here, I have T2, the sequel to Trainspotting, on my list. And that's a movie that I watched years and years and years ago and thought it was pretty interesting so i am very interested to see what t2 will be like especially since it's been years since it's been out if i do a quick google search here i don't remember off the top of my head when train spotting came out and let's hope that frank and matt cooperates right now uh let's see train spotting came out in oh come on google 1996 so it has been over 20 years since it's been out. So, yeah, that should be interesting. Usually sequels don't come out 20 years after the fact, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I'm trying to think. I think, oh my gosh, I Google train spotting and now it says that train spotting three might be coming out. Can we let train spotting two come out first? <laughs> right. Would be- that would be nice. Uh, but let's see here. It, Yep, it does look like they're going to bring back the original cast members as well for T2. And that includes Ewan McGregor, Ewan Bremer, Johnny Lee Miller, and Robert Carlyle. Okay. Yeah, I've never seen the original, so clearly that would be why I was no help on any of this information. <laughs> yeah. So according to this, the premise of this is set 20 years after the previous film, where Ewan McGregor's Mark Renton returns to Scotland to make amends with his friends. Spud, played by Ewan Brummer, and Sick Boy, played by Johnny Lee Miller, while avoiding the psychopathic Franco, played by Robert Carlyle, who has recently been released from prison. Okay. And just to get you up onto speed, like, the first one was about, like, a heroin addict and just, like, kind of violent and kind of gross. <laughs> so little little weird you know yeah watching, so that, i think okay i'll have to add that to my very long list of movies i have not seen but should have and for yeah, some reason I, still have I, not seen them <laughs> i think it's up your alley yeah so that sort of covers it for the movies we are looking forward to obviously these are short lists if we took the time we could probably come up with at least 10 each i know i was looking through and i was like oh i'll probably want to see that and that but it's not like i'm really heavily anticipating those movies. But on the other hand, I have a few books and a few comic books that I'm looking forward to. And 
one I will read the description of simply because I believe it's a debut novel. So like myself, pretty much everyone listening to this probably has not heard of this author before, but the book is The Mercy of the Tide by Keith Rawson. And this takes place in Oregon in 1983. And the description is a sleepy coastal town where crime usually consists of underage drinking down at Wolf Point at a Wolf Point bonfire. But then strange things start happening. A human skeleton is unearthed in in a local park and mutilated animals begin appearing, seemingly sacrificed on the town's beaches. So obviously a mystery thriller type of book, and it's totally right up my alley. So I actually have an advanced copy of this, and I'm hoping to get to that pretty soon here because the book is out next month. (laughs) So, you know, I have to review it, but it sounded interesting enough for me to really start to look forward to it. And I don't really look ahead for what books are being released too often, just because I sort of have authors that I'll follow. And I'll just kind of not even necessarily keep up with their stuff as it comes out. Because if I had tried to keep up with Stephen King's stuff, well, one, I wasn't born when he started releasing books. So that would be impossible. But I do have, you know, some Stephen King books and my mom has pretty much all of the older ones. She started buying them in chronological order. So I have a lot of Stephen King to catch up on, but I still sort of keep up with what he's releasing and when he's releasing new stuff, even though I won't get to it right away. So I think, you know, if this book does well for this author, he might end up being one that I continue to follow as he writes more stuff. Which isn't a bad thing at all doesn't sound like a book i would read but that's because you know something about mutilated animals just gets to me i have one book on my list compared to your list which does feature a lot more comic books yeah i mean if i'm going to talk about graphic novels and comic books i'm going to say 2017 is the year that i'm going to buy john lewis's march in the complete trilogy set uh it's currently sold out on amazon last time i checked i read it last year And it's been winning awards. And in today's day and age, it's a book everyone should be reading. Yeah. I mean it. Especially after Trump's remarks about how John Lewis was all talk and no action. Like, come on, dude. Can you pick up a book? It's in history books. Anyway. um, My book on here is Hunger by Roxanne Gay. And it's actually going to be a memoir. Right. So that'll be fun. I mean, not fun is an oh hey let's go to the mall fun but (laughs) just a good read because Roxanne is such a fantastic writer and totally forgot to put this in the notes but this year I'm looking forward to listening to more podcasts and today the Washington Post announced that they have a new podcast out that I'm very interested in it is called can he do that (laughs) and It's about Trump and about the ways he's changed the political landscape and how he'll continue to change the political landscape. And it's hosted by Allison Michaels and co-hosted each week by a different Post reporter. And it will also explain what his presidency means for people in the United States and the rest of the world. Nice. Yeah, I only really have one political podcast that I listen to, and it's called Pod Save America. It originally was Keeping It 1600 on the Ringers Podcast Network, but then the guys decided to start their own media company called 
crooked media. So then they took the podcast feed basically and started a new podcast that is along the same lines as keeping it 1600. And we all know I do not need any more podcasts to listen to. So the rest of my list, as you said, some comic books, but there are also two Star Wars books on my list. So I'll just lump those together. The first one is Aftermath Empire's End by Chuck Wendig. And this is the third book in his Aftermath trilogy. So I've read the first two and obviously it'll be hard to not want to finish up the trilogy and read the third one. So I'm looking forward to how that plays out. And the other one is Thrawn by Timothy Zahn. And that will basically just be an in-depth look as Thrawn as a character. And he's sort of one of the major players in the Empire. So I know not everyone likes to dig into everything Star Wars. But for me, it's been a really cool experience sort of getting into that the last year. Because while the books aren't extremely crucial to understanding what's going on in the movies and everything. I think it just adds a little something extra that's kind of nice to have if you want it. That's true. And obviously, you and I know not everyone is big on reading. So there are plenty of people who will just watch the movies. And that's that. But I've been watching the movies, obviously, reading the books, reading all of the new comics that Marvel has done as they come out on Marvel Unlimited. And they've had some really great stuff there as well. So that sort of leads me into my next section here, which I have three comics listed. Two are already set and everything. So the first one is Batwoman by Marguerite Bennett, and the art will be by Steve Epting. And then Super Sons by Peter J. Tomasi with art by Jorge Jimenez. Basically, it these are going to be two new titles in the Rebirth series that DC is doing. I guess you can call it that because they weren't really calling it a relaunch or anything. It's just sort of a continuation. But I feel like, you know, Super Sons is going to be about Robin and Superman's son, so Superboy. And they've already made appearances in the Superman comic together. And I believe there might have been an issue of Batman. I'm not entirely sure on that. I could be wrong, but... It was really entertaining to see the two boys together because they have totally different personalities. And I think this will just be a fun read. And for Batwoman, obviously, it's nice to see a female-focused comic book. And it's written by Marguerite Bennett, who does a ton of great writing. She does a ton of great work for comics. So I know a lot of people are really, really excited about Batwoman because, you know, a lot of times it's like Batman this, Batman that, and, you know... Personally, I really enjoy Batman comics, but I also enjoy the Bat family as a whole. So adding Batwoman to the mix is just going to add an extra element that we haven't been getting so far with DC Rebirth. But on that note, I do still have a Batman comic that I'm looking forward to because I believe it'll be happening around this summer. Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo are going to team up again for a Batman title, which there hasn't been too much announced about it, but... Having read their new 52 Batman and them finishing that out, and I believe it was like 10 trades worth of comics. So, you know, they have a really good thing going there, and a lot of people like that run, especially myself. That was sort of the first Batman run that I really got into. So, I'm always looking forward to what these two do next as a team. Which isn't bad at all. Yeah, and I 
again, like comics aren't really something that I look ahead to. I sort of just check out new stuff as it comes out, which it helps writing for talking comics because every week we're sent a pull list and typically they'll have all of the new number ones that are coming out for the week. So I sort of keep up more on a week to week basis for comics. I'm not looking too far ahead. It's just DC has been promoting these in their other comic books, like at the end of the comic books. So it's kind of hard to miss these ones when you have a big company like DC promoting them. But for Image Stuff and Boom Studios and some of the other smaller publishers, I don't really keep up on much more than a week-to-week basis. But that wraps up our sort of anticipated media that isn't music section here. (laughs) So we're going to dive into our book club portion of the episode. And as a reminder, we read Nothing Feels Good by Andy Greenwald. Megan, I thought you had read this before. Clearly, I was wrong and you had not. So we were both reading this for the first time. So why don't we just sort of start with some overall thoughts on the book? For starters, I wanted to buy this book on Amazon, but it was like $23 for a paperback. And I was like, uh, no, that's okay. (laughs) And I found a Chrome extension that would let me know if a book on Amazon was actually in my library, which lo and behold, it was surprisingly because the last time I searched for it, I think our last podcast, uh, I was like, my library doesn't have this book. And I guess they did. So that's that. <laughs> they were lying um, to you. <laughs> I know, right? Thanks, Rappahannock. <laughs> but the interesting thing about this book, other than the fact that it says it should be $15, uh, <laughs> don't mind me being a disgruntled person about book pricing. I thought it was interesting that my library had this book classified as a young adult book. Like, straight up, I'm looking at the spine right now, and it's got a giant young adult sticker on the side of it. I didn't think this was a young adult book at all. Like, sure, it's a book about teenagers, and it's a book about a specific subset of teenagers, but I don't think that teenagers these days would really be into reading a book like this because some of them just don't want to listen about the history of emo and some of them don't want to listen about the history of some great record labels a lot of them are just like we don't care which is really sad i know a lot of teenagers who would be very interested in reading about this but i don't think it was a book actually directed towards teenagers I was reading it, and I kind of did actually get a vibe from it. I mean, there's a lot of history involved in this book, which is great. Teenagers don't want to read about history because they already have their history classes in school. That's a general uh, generalization, though, so bear with me. It was... I liked some of the snark within it. I liked that it was pretty straightforward. And importantly, it made me feel really old because in a lot of, uh, in the emo heyday of the 2000s, I was like a tween. I was a teenager. So reading this book as an adult was kind of interesting to me. And I don't know. It was a good read. I liked it. And I'm really glad I read it. Finally, I'll probably end up buying it when it's cheaper on Amazon. Uh, But yeah, plus, you know, 
Uh, oh, yeah. I definitely do not think that this is a book for young adults either. I just flipped to the sad girl stories, women in emo chapter. And they're talking about lyrics from brand new, which are kind of, you know, dark in typical brand new fashion. But they're talking about Glassjaw as well, including uh, actual Glassjaw lyrics that Greenwald says would make even the hillside strangler blush. You filthy whore, shut up and swallow my pride for me. I don't give a fuck about your dignity. That's the bastard in me. Right. Yeah. Not for teenagers. This is something teenagers these days would actually be revolting about, since a lot of them are becoming more socially aware of injustices around them, and they would be like, what? We don't want to listen to music about this. We're going to boycott Glassjaw. Yeah, and, and I think... Huh. Go ahead. Yeah, actually, in today's day and age, the woman in emo section is a very important read. Other than the fact that, you know, this book might be a little dated since, what, it came out in 2003. Yeah, the end of 2003. Yeah. And here we are in 2017. It could definitely use an update. Like, I could easily, easily see an addendum on this women in emo section. Yeah, and I mean, this is the only book that Andy Greenwald wrote, as far as I know. And I know he isn't really too interested in writing about music as much anymore, especially right now at this very moment, he's been working on a TV show. So, you know, he sort of has his handful, hands full with other things going on right now. And he's doing a podcast over at The Ringer, which is still definitely sort of pop culture geared. They'll talk about movies, music, TV shows, and that sort of thing. So that's sort of where I get my Andy Greenwald fix for now. And I really do enjoy his writing, but I do agree that the book is definitely dated. I wouldn't say the whole thing is dated, but it's more so that last section where he's talking about specific websites and live journal and, you know, this stuff that isn't around anymore. So anyone who reads it now might not even know what these things are or were in this case. And personally, I never used anything that was mentioned in that sort of final section of the book because I don't think he really touched on MySpace or anything because I think in the early 2000s, that's sort of what everyone was just then getting into or something like that around Mm -hmm. that same time. So if you weren't part of those platforms, it's sort of really hard to care about that last section of the book or relate to it even. But what I think he did really well was going through the different record labels that had an impact on emo music. And it was weird for me because he mentions one of my Drexel professors in this book, Darren Walters, who is one of the co-owners of Jade Tree. So, you know, I saw his name on, I believe it was page two of the book. And I was like, this is going to be a little strange. And he has a larger section where he talks to Darren more later on in the book. And Having Darren as a professor, it's like, I did sort of know some of these things already, but I think it added a little something extra that I didn't necessarily know because Jade Tree hasn't been doing a ton lately. And when I was at Drexel, it's like the label was sort of just starting to get out some newer releases instead of relying on that back catalog they had or that they have that's done so well for them. 
Mm-hmm. So it was just like an interesting perspective on that. And even when he was covering Vagrant and the other labels, I thought that was a good look into how those labels worked at the time. And while it's not necessarily how things work today with digital being more prominent and obviously vinyl is coming back even more than it probably was in the early 2000s. It would be interesting to see an updated version, but I don't think we're going to get that. So I think just the datedness of the book is sort of what made it slightly less enjoyable. But I love Andy Greenwald's writing style. So that was, you know, more than enough for me. And the way he did the interview with Chris Caraba of Dashboard Confessional, that whole section was just such a big insight onto, you know, this one into this one person's life as a musician. And I think he did that really well. Although I think it would have been great to sort of see more of that with different people, not just strictly, you know, have this one big section just on Chris Caraba. Well, I think if we think about that era, Dashboard Confessional was one of the biggest emo bands. And Chris Caraba definitely was like a household name for many many music fans. I mean, sure, there's also Matt Pryor of the Get Up Kids, and there's also Jesse Lacey, Adam Lazar of Taking Back Sunday, all those guys that were also essentially household names. But Chris was definitely one of the biggest. And in that time, let's see, 2003, that would be about the time a Mark Mishnah brand of Scar came out, if I'm thinking of this correctly. That's the album that really, really skyrocketed the band to full-on emo god status, I guess you could say. Yeah, and I'm not saying he wasn't big by any means. I just think if you go into this book based on the title of the book, you might not necessarily be expecting a huge section focusing solely on one artist necessarily because, you know, you don't get any hint that hey, we're going to have this giant dashboard confessional section in the book. And I do think, you know, that part was well written. I just think, you know, this book wasn't that long. So if he could have added bits and pieces with other artists, like you said, Jesse Lacey, Matt Pryor. And I know Jimmy World is technically on the internet just classified as a rock band on Wikipedia and whatnot. But I think they were because you have to figure he wasn't writing this book in 2003 he was writing it at least a couple years before and you know sweetness the middle those all came out in 2001 so i think jimmy world could have been a little more prominent in this book as well and not necessarily serve the same purpose that the interview with chris caraba did but i just think it would have been cool to sort of get these different perspectives from these different singers or different bands Mm -hmm. and i know he does do that a bit when he's talking more so in the label section of the book he's talking to different label owners different people with different job titles in labels and everything so i think if it had been handled a little more like that section i think you could have seen a lot more of the emo scene basically right and I'm actually going to touch back on this women and emo section. It's actually really small compared to the other chapters in the book. Like, it's only nine pages long. Right. And it, it, 
based on my memory, there were some very strong female-fronted emo bands out there in the scene associated with Saddle Creek or, yeah, mostly Saddle Creek. And it's interesting to see them not get mentioned in here, like Rainer Maria, if I'm remember, Yes, Rainer Maria. Um, another thing is reading this in 2017, it, it was very interesting because it says at the end, despite emo's purported sensitivity, many of the old gender fault lines remain. Well, this is technically still true, you know, 14 years later. But perhaps when this generation of emo fans begin to form their own bands, a new female-voiced wave of heartbreak songs will emerge. Perhaps they'll be more articulate and nuanced, perhaps not. And immediately what comes to mind are a lot of the pop-punk bands led by females. Right. And then there's Paramore that also comes to mind. So just that, it could use an addendum, honestly. It really could. Because there's so much of a an impact that a lot of the female bands have had today that in 2003, in the early 2000s, you would kind of take one look and be like, oh, okay, so emo isn't solely about boys whining about how they didn't get the girl or how sad they are that the girl just doesn't like them. It's, I mean, it's much more than that, obviously, but the generation we're we're in that generation of emo fans that were being written about in this book like the young ones so i don't know i think i'm rambling sorry about that i definitely get where i definitely get where you're coming from because i mean we also have to consider the fact that he probably had to work with whoever was available to him or whoever was willing to talk to him and obviously Mm -hmm. that's not something we would know maybe he did hit up Rainer Maria and they didn't get back to him or, you know, it just didn't work out. I mean, obviously, that's something we probably will never know. But I do think what he he didn't necessarily make up for it, but he did talk to a lot of girls in the music scene. So he talked to a lot of the teenage girls who were listening to this music. And I think that was something he did really well. And it was pretty interesting because he just literally put in the conversations obviously he changed names where he was asked to not use someone's real name but he by no means changed the gender of these people just for the sake of keeping their identity a secret and i think it was just so raw the way he did that just by simply putting in the conversations into the book obviously they were put into context outside of the conversation you know he didn't just throw them in there randomly but i think Mm -hmm. that part of the book was really well done and speaking of these conversations it's also interesting that to many teenagers today this would be a time relic because these are aim conversations right because these are transcripts that even include a greenwald signed off at 4 37 p.m and in today's constantly ever connecting world teenagers don't just get to see this oh x has signed off at this time if they see something like that they'll be like what i mean skype doesn't even have that snapchat doesn't have that iMessage even so it also plays into a lot of how that was one of the primary means of communication along with live journal so live journal though 
going back to what you were saying about how it was dated, how like even you hadn't really used this stuff. I had a lot of friends that were branching out into the world of live journal in MySpace back in the day. And that was used as like their diary of sorts. We're seeing this shift from people going from writing in journals to broadcasting their thoughts in these public spaces with sometimes usernames that were not synonymous with their actual name. And now we're seeing a resurgence of people actually starting to write in journals again or taking to Tumblr to do the same thing that people were doing with LiveJournal and MySpace. So that's an interesting cultural connection to make right there. Yeah, and I think Um, I really just barely missed the LiveJournal era because I started with MySpace. That was the first social media site or platform that I got into. And then from there, I went over to Facebook. And it wasn't until even freshman year of college, I believe, that I made a Twitter account. So I really haven't been using Twitter all that long. It's been, you know, six going on seven years now or something like that, because I only really made a Twitter account when I was still doing street teaming stuff for Fearless and Fueled by Ramen, because they wanted you to obviously promote the releases and everything on Twitter as well as on Facebook. So it sort of just transformed from there. Obviously, now I am no longer on those street teams. So that is not what I use Twitter for now. But that was sort of my initial reason for signing up for the platform. And I feel like MySpace, I wasn't into it that long. I feel like maybe I got it seventh or eighth grade and then I was on Facebook halfway through high school or something. So I feel like MySpace has definitely been short-lived compared to Facebook and Twitter. And it is still around, but I don't know anyone who is using it. I oddly know people who write for MySpace. Like, well, they'll interview bands and do features and stuff. But other than that, I don't really know what's going on over there. Yeah, it doesn't have the same format as it did back in the day. I mean, I only still have a MySpace for the fact that my embarrassing photos are on there from that era. Um, but with MySpace, it's interesting to say or interesting to hear that you said that, you know, that was kind of your first foray into the world of social media. Right. Mine was Zanga, which, okay. interestingly enough, is now owned by WordPress. And Zanga was oh god i had that in sixth grade and my friend helped me make my username and it was you're the one i need or something like that and the your was spelled wrong and to this day it still bothers me anyway (laughs) um zanga was very much for people my age the live journal of the early 2000s for those groups of tweens and teens right and then from there we all shifted over to myspace and I mean, I've had a Facebook since 2006. I was lucky enough to get an invite back when it was invite only um, from my cousins who had it. And yeah. Tumblr was another one, too, that sort of happened somewhere in between MySpace, Facebook, Um, and Twitter. (laughs) Well, actually, let's see if I go through my evolution. So got the Facebook right before my freshman year of high school was still on MySpace well up and through part of my freshman year of college because a lot of my friends were still not quick to adapt even in 2009 to get onto the whole Facebook train. Right. 
which is interesting. And then Tumblr actually came around more along, like, for me and a lot of my friends in 2009. Um, So we were kind of using that as a transition from the MySpace era to a different blogging platform. And then with Twitter, I solely got that in... Uh, let's see, November of my senior year of high school, so 2008, just to communicate with other members of the video crew because at the time, Twitter wasn't blocked at my school, and that was a way we used to communicate with each other. Uh, Teachers were like, okay, whatever. Didn't realize the impact it would have years from then. Like, we're at, what, nine years now since I've had one? Yeah, nine years. And now it's become a platform where... You can make any flaming remark and not be, like, fully vetted for what you said. Because it's a weird age of technology now. Anyway, slight tangent aside of the history of social media. (laughs) Going back to what you were saying about the labels. Right. I love the fact that Vagrant was recognized like vagrant was definitely one of the powerhouse of emo labels in that era and it was one of my favorites like a lot of the bands i listened to in middle school were all vagrant bands like the get up kids dashboard confessional ascenders etc um interestingly enough though it's weird to see what Vagrant, which was once the strong emo presence, what has this turned into today? And, I mean, it's still around. Right. But it's very much not the same Vagrant records that it was back in the day. Like, today, it's more of an indie pop label. And it features artists like the 1975, Blitz and Trapper, Justin Towns Earl, City and Color, Thrice, Dustin Kensrue, so on and so forth. And that's a vast difference. Maybe not so much with Thrice, but to hear, like, the 1975 who've blown up and Justin Towns Earl, who's more of a an indie country artist. Right. It's interesting to see that shift. But a lot of that has to do with who bought them back in 2014. It wasn't, like, they did get bought out and let's see because they they hit their 20 year mark last year of being around as a label yeah uh ah yes 2014 it was acquired not required i'm sorry (laughs) acquired by bmg rights management so i feel like that has a lot to do with this shift from straight up emo artists to a lot more of a diverse um roster like, the Hold Steady is on this label, and Pete Yorn. And really, I think the only band that could technically be considered relatively emo in, by today's standards, well, only two, I should say, is City and Color and Balance and Composure. Right. Whereas back in the day, like, The Bled, A Curse of Memory, wow, what a throwback right there, um... Dr. Manhattan, Alkaline Trio, Lexus on Fire, Hot Rod Circuit, like, so many. Like, the New Amsterdam's, too, which was another band, I believe, by Matt Pryor. Um, Even Saves the Day and Census Fail were on this label. 
So it's it's just, I don't know. The history of it and even getting today's, pulling in today's viewpoint of that, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, definitely. But there were other... There were other labels I would have liked to see, you know, mentioned, because not every emo band was on Vagrant. Right. But it's okay. And I mean, J-Tree did have a lot of names that people who were really into emo would recognize. You know, they had the Promise Ring. They have bands like Jets to Brazil, Owls, Mm -hmm. and, you know, they have these names that people will easily recognize if they followed emo music in this time period and I didn't really get into it until way later it was probably more like college I would say and obviously you know having Darren as a professor (laughs) sort of helps you learn more about these bands because he worked with all of them that were on Jade Tree and it's just I think the way Andy Greenwald writes about bands is just so eloquent but easy to read so you know you can definitely tell when he really enjoys what he's writing about and you can even hear that in his podcast when he talks about music i know him and chris ryan are pretty big fans of beach slang so they've talked about beach slang quite a bit on the podcast and it's just sort of a bummer for me that he's not writing about music anymore and when this book came out he was writing for spin so this was even before his grantland days which is when i started reading him and i believe by then he was already more on the film tv show side of uh-huh. things so this sort of makes me want to kind of go back and find a bunch of his spin stuff because When this came out, I was, what, 11 or, you know, almost 11 in 2003. So I wasn't really reading Spin at the time, nor did I even know what it was, probably. So it'll be interesting to see, going back, sort of what other music he delved into and that sort of thing. So like I said, we probably won't be getting an update to this book, which is a bit of a bummer. But despite the whole live journal section and everything, a good chunk of this book stands up today you know reading about the labels reading his interview with chris caraba and everything that was all still really great to read oh definitely and this is a book that i could actually see myself coming back to and reading as time goes on even when i'm hitting my geriatric years when i'm (laughs) old and gray well more gray than i already am now or like introducing it to my future offspring And the way he has it set up makes it easy to go back and just read bits and pieces at a time as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I did notice some similarities, like going back to the whole like snark factor in um, the book that we talked about in a different episode of Misaligned with the illustrations. Um, Oh, my God. Everybody hurts. Yes. That one. I was just about to say different R.E.M. song. (laughs) that's where my brain's at today but yeah i did pick up on some notes of everybody hurts in it okay so essentially i felt like this was more of a grown-up version of that book without the pictures which is fun yeah and i still haven't read everybody hurts but i have it sitting on my shelf which is why i was easily able to tell you the name of it but are there any last thoughts you have on this book i enjoyed it i believe i gave it a 
three out of five on Goodreads. Goodreads doesn't let you do half stars. I really wanted to do three and a half, but then I couldn't decide if I wanted to make it three or four on Goodreads. So I kept switching it back and forth. So now I don't remember what I left it at. (laughs) Yeah, I would say about a three and a half too for my rating. Yeah, I would say that if you are interested in the history of emo music, especially if you're in your 20s now and want to look back and kind of reminisce about that time period of bad fashion not so whiny vocals that people would think are whiny now read it it's a good cultural insight into a very small subsect of something that many people tend to overlook even in this resurgence of emo today right well that wraps up our thoughts on Nothing Feels Good by Andy Greenwald, which is, in fact, the album title for the second Promise Ring album, in case anyone was curious as to where that phrase came from. I'm assuming that is it, since the Promise Ring is mentioned in here. But our next book, we've already decided on. We will be reading On Bowie by Rob Sheffield. And it's not a long book by any means. It's also a very small, compact book, not as much so as the 33 and a third books, but It should be a fairly easy read, and I know, Megan, this was one you've been wanting to read for a while now Mm -hmm. since it came out, so we -hmm. thought now would be a good time to get to that. And before we dive into recommendations, too, check out the live episode of the Modern Vinyl Podcast. They went to Chicago, did an ep Chicago, right? Yeah. Yep, Chicago. (laughs) They went to Chicago and did a live episode at Pinwheel Records, and Chris... Michael and James talked about their top 10 music movies of all time. So that I just listened to that earlier today, and it was a really fun episode to listen to. So definitely check that out. But now we are going to hit our recommendations to close out this podcast. We both have two to three things here. So Megan, what are your recommendations? I mean, I've got music on mine. But as a quick little side note, when you said the promise ring title, Mm-hmm with the book when i read it the only song that would go through my head is actually nothing feels good anymore by the menzingers okay like i don't know if that's weird or not but that's what went through my head a little more recent there (laughs) yeah i've got that baseline going through my head anyway my recommendations a few months ago i said you know the 30 days 30 or 30 songs 30 days series was a recommendation of mine and they're actually going to continue that And now it is A Thousand Days, A Thousand Songs. Because we all know that music is going to get us through the next thousand plus days. Um, So I'm excited about that. And they already have updated their Spotify playlist to reflect the fact that it's going to be a thousand songs now. Which just, wow, that's a lot of music. Um, Also, Priests have released, well, will be releasing a new album this week. And Nothing Feels Natural is actually streaming on NPR's First Listen. You might remember a few episodes ago when I said that Katie Alice Greer, the singer of Priests, released a solo album. And this is the band's full band album. And they will actually be embarking on a tour of this soon. And I don't know. It's good. Just listen to it. Nice. I have one comic book recommendation this week and two music recommendations. So I'll start with the comic book. It's 
a comic called Giant Days. It's from Boom. And it's about these three girls who are on their way to university. This takes place not in America, so hence why it's called a university instead of college over in the UK. And it's just a really, really fun read. And it's sort of these three girls are very different, but they sort of stick together and they each have their own little quirks and they're sort of just trying to figure things out. Being in college now, it's their first time on their own. And I feel like while it's exaggerated, it's still relatable in a sense that you can sit there and laugh at it and be like, yeah, okay, those things are very realistic to things that happen in college. And it was just a really well done comic. The first volume has the first four issues in it. And I believe if you go to a comic book store and grab it, it's 10 bucks. So I'm sure it's probably a few bucks cheaper on Amazon as things usually are. So if you are into comics, I highly recommend that. And my two music recommendations this week are Cloud Nothings and Japan Droids. Both will be out this Friday or tomorrow for everyone listening to this, if you listen to it the day it comes out. But both are streaming now. I don't remember where Japan Droids is streaming. It might also be NPR, but I know Cloud Nothings is streaming on Hype Machine. So definitely check those out. You can check them out as soon as you hear this, or you can throw them on Spotify or Apple Music if it's already Friday by the time you're listening to this or after Friday. But I just think these are some solid rock records for the year already. And I had mentioned previously that I was really anticipating Japan Droids simply because they were a band I knew I should have gotten into sooner, but didn't. And while I know this record is different from Celebration Rock, I still found it very enjoyable. And Cloud Nothing's they were a band I had already heard of. So I was just sort of looking forward to what they were doing next. And for them, it's also a bit of a different record. So it's just sort of interesting to see what these two bands have been doing to sort of tweak their sound and change it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. So that wraps up our episode for this week. And as always, thank you guys for listening. If you have a moment, definitely give us a rating or a review on iTunes. It definitely helps. I know at one point, at least for the Overcast users, Misaligned popped up in the music section on the Overcast recommendation page that gives you stuff to check out and everything. We were up there with Encore, so that was pretty cool. But if you guys have a moment, that would be awesome. And as always, we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.